Hey everybody, before I get on to the episode with Steve, I have a quick favor to ask. If you've got an iPhone, go find the podcast app. It's a purple icon that has a microphone looking thing on it and search for the show Interverse Podcast on there. If you find the show for me in there and leave a review by clicking the write a review button and put five stars in there, I'll be super happy. I'll be super grateful. The reason I need you to do it is because the more of these reviews that I get, the better iTunes is going to do serving the podcast to new people who are looking for shows in the arts category. So please leave a review if you can. It's only going to take you 30 or 45 seconds. If you're subscribed to the show already and you're looking in there and you're trying to figure out how to leave a review, you actually have to go search for the show in the search function and leave a review that way. You can't do it from where you're subscribed. I know it's weird. But anyway, thank you so much to everybody that's already been doing this. I get several of these every week. They're piling up and it's really helping. And we're going to get a bigger and bigger community. And that's good for all of us. Okay, thank you. On to the show. Welcome to Interverse Podcasts, Season 2, Episode 13. Today I'm talking to my friend Steven Singer. And Steven is a buddy of mine that I made at the rock climbing gym. We found out we had a lot in common. We both play guitar. We both like bass. We both climb rocks. We, uh, we both went to University of Missouri. Anyway, Steve is a really rad guy. He's a professor of mathematics at Missouri State. So anybody that's into rock climbing and in a bunch of bands and is a teacher for math teaching lots of bright minds how to do crazy equations he's got to be an awesome guy all around right well yeah that's a correct assumption steve is the man you're listening to his music right now in the background too it makes perfect weird 80s ambient music go look up his uh, album here window you can get it for only three dollars on Bandcamp. it's a great Great energetic exchange. I highly recommend it. Anyway, I'll make sure and link to all that in the episode notes. Other than that, uh, I don't think I have a whole lot to go on about in an intro for today's episode. I think I'll just get right to it. I'm sure you guys don't mind. And Steve, he really speaks for himself. He doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. So make sure you check out the links for Steve's music. And other than that, just... Keep on being awesome. Have a great week. Share love. Spread love. Do your thing. And don't worry about stuff. Okay. I'll see you on the other side.
Hey, do you guys want to talk about Patreon? Cool, me too. <laughs> so does my friend Chris. Uh, Chris Abert, actually. Say what's up, Chris. Hey, what's going on, James? <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about why Patreon is such an awesome service and also why specifically it's a good idea to maybe consider donating to Interverse. I say donating, but it's really more of a subscription purchase because I will be providing content, some pretty exclusive content, depending on the reward tier that you sign up for pledge-wise. And you'll be putting money directly into a platform that helps boost artists get their profile to more people so that they can get more sales on their stuff or more views on their videos or more listens on their music and all that and all of you out there are artists too and this platform that we're building together could be useful and also just funding it will help you get exposed to new cool people just by being a listener to the show so there's multiple levels of interactivity and you can get involved at patreon.com slash interverse chris why do you think it's a good idea well, firstly, I mean, you can even look at me, somebody like me, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to get my own podcast going and I do photography and art and stuff like that. So personally, I have my own media that I would like to create and contribute and share. And I would like to be able to find ways to support myself doing it as well as other friends that are doing it too. Like that's kind of how I found out about it was from you. And I usually pretty much called me up and talked about it. And, uh, you know, I, pledge five dollars to you and that gives me you know access to cool stuff on your shoulder that just kind of really unique and like you get art and cool stuff and exclusive content and it gives me a chance to interact more with you and help you out so it's literally it's like what you're trying to put out there i'm just trying to help you reflect it wanting some your friend and too so i think it's 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 a great idea it's something that's actually um that we can both thrive mutual you know benefit from it's synergistic exactly yeah, yeah and that's what i want um I'm trying to, personally, I'm trying to make it in this world as an artist and I want to be able to use whatever way that I make it for other people to also make it. Because, you know, we can all rise together here. We can completely rewrite the rules of our culture even, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. But it starts by rewriting the rules of our own lives. If you can help me turn podcasting into my actual livelihood, all it really would take from you is a minimum of $1 a month pledge. So that's not really that big of a, a commitment. But there are a lot of you out there who have already pledged more than that. And on the previous episode, I gave shout outs to all the $1 people. And there's a lot of you and I love you all and thank you again for that. Now I'm going to give the shout outs to everybody that was on the three and up reward tiers. So my $3 people, Stephen Hamilton. Thanks, brother. Brother-in-law, unofficial. Shelby Garten, my wonderful sister. My wife, Haley. And I don't know if that counts, but it does kind of count. I'm still giving you a shout out. <laughs> uh, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Clint Culberson, um, another fellow podcaster. Thanks a lot, dude. Also, he's been on the show before, so go check him out. My good brother, Derek Krim. And my good friend, David Duncan. David, we're going to have on the show soon. Check out Wisdom Traders if you want to hear what he's up to. And then $5 people. These guys are extreme superheroes. I, I'm blown away that they want to give me $5. But in reality, what that essentially adds up to is like a dollar per episode because I'm going to put out four to six episodes a month. So it seems kind of reasonable. $1 an episode, you pay a dollar for a song. And, and these episodes are like an hour or more. Anyway, Steven Singer. 
wonderful friend and also a podcast guest, Stephanie Murray. Thank you, Stephanie, a really inspirational friend. Peter Merrick, past guest of the show, excellent wire rapper, wonderful human being. Chris Abert, you're in this $5 tier, you're on the list, so I'm saying your name again. <laughs> Shout out, Chris. <laughs> Elise Myers, Elise is a total spiritual master Jedi. I love you, Elise, thank you. Kathy, my mother, you're wonderful. Brandon Ludwig, also known as Bingo, you're a good buddy of mine and you will always have a place at my table for dinner, so come over and hang out soon. <laughs> Jeff Severson is the $12 guru. That uh, The $12 reward tier that Jeff joined up in, that's actually limited to only 12 people. So if you are interested in making podcasts with me, getting a crystal from me, having some one-on-one -on -one strategy meetings about what you're trying to manifest in the world, sign up for the $12 reward tier. We will be one another's disciples. It could be fun. Okay, and then $25 reward, that's huge. But uh, thanks, Dad. Wow, that's a lot to commit to uh, paying every month. I don't know if you're gonna keep that up, but you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you for supporting my dream. Also, go check out treasurechief.com. That's where my dad sells metal detectors if you ever wanna go treasure hunting. I'm totally serious. He can teach you quite a bit about how to find hidden treasure. And I know a lot of you secretly wanna do that. So <laughs> that's it for my shout outs. Uh, I want to thank Chris for being here. Also, thank you for the $5. Most welcome, man. Thank you for everything. And I hope to be supporting you back on Patreon very soon, actually. And stay tuned for future podcast episodes coming. Not sure exactly when, but in the near future from Chris. Your podcast is called? Dream Nexus. Dream Nexus. What's it going to be about? Well, I'm uh, kind of trying to like learn from everybody that I'm kind of... Um, inspired by right now and uh, I'm trying to basically connect people that are in my you know network of friends and just people that I would do business with as well as just connect artists I'm, I'm in music festivals and you know the, with the farming and I've been on different shows with you before and stuff like that's even <clears> led to you being on uh, Clint's show Lords of Consciousness yeah, too. yeah so uh, yeah I don't know it's just it's uh it's a really great opportunity. So it's a great way to learn. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, listening to podcasts is a great way to learn. Making a podcast, much faster way to learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it turns out I've been learning a lot from doing this. It's definitely like leveling up my soul more quickly. I feel like, I don't know, <laughs> you're going to enjoy it. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you're getting into it. Yeah, me too. Anyway, thanks to everybody who's pledged to my Patreon and you'll be getting more shout outs in the future, depending on what month it is. And if you are curious about pledging, go to patreon.com forward slash interverse and check out all the rewards you can get there. Videos of some episodes, there's free artwork. There's the ability to do stuff like recommend what people you want on the show. You can even get yourself on the show. You can get me to promote your content, all kinds of stuff. So let's make this a synergistic relationship, shall we?
you know, just like your body, like everything. You okay. know, preventive maintenance goes way further. Tell, okay, this is Steve Singer. That's how you say your last name, right? Yeah, Singer. Uh, and I want you to say what you were just talking about with meditation, how it's preventative. So, yeah, somebody told me it stuck with me. I don't, I don't know, but um, it was like I used to meditate just kind of for the heck of it back in the day. It was like kind of fun, and then. I had a whole thing when I was like 18, 17 or 18, where I got into a sleep paralysis. I didn't know what it was. I was just like, okay, meditation is dangerous. I had this like horrible experience. You're not the only person that has basically even quit yeah. meditating because that kind of thing started to happen. Yeah. And so do you want to know my take on what's going on there? Sure, man. Okay. I think that we have basically two bodies mm -hmm. and one of them is subtle and energetic and the other one is physical. Yeah, and I've, I've heard of the subtle body. Yeah. Whenever you are asleep and in a like real dream-like state and your awareness is essentially shut off and you're having experiences but you're not like recording them, that you could say you're actually out of your body. Mm -hmm. And because you lose awareness as you're falling asleep, you don't remember the leaving your body part typically. Mm -hmm. But meditation is the practice of building awareness and cultivating awareness as much as possible. That's why meditators and lucid dreamers are often the same people. And what's going on is because you're able to focus longer and longer in a single pointed way and not get distracted because of meditation as a practice. Whenever you start to fall asleep, your body falls asleep. Mm. But your awareness stays switched on in a way that it doesn't for other people that don't have a daily practice. So the sleep paralysis is actually what comes before the part where you actually lift up out of your body and wow. you can float around the room. And I know this because I've had this happen. I have actually had, I had the whole sleep paralysis thing for about a year and a half where it was yeah. just scaring the shit out of me. Sure. It wasn't all the time, but it was like if I did psychedelics, Mm -hmm. Or if I had some like really big uh, third eye opening experience, some kind of huge shifts happening or I had it uh, anyway, culminated with a colon cleanse I did, which freed up a lot of energy in me. And on the fifth day of having no solid food, when I was falling asleep, I had the sleep paralysis again. But I finally got to a point where I was like, OK, next time it happens, I'm not going to freak out and force myself to wake up. Uh -huh. I'm going to actually just go with the flow because mm -hmm. I know I'm not going to die. Um, yeah. And anyway, doing that caused me to actually lift up and separate from my body. I could look down. I was up in the ceiling. I could look down Whoa. and see myself. I floated over to the doorway and went out of my room. But what's weird is about that point, I told that about the podcast before, I'm sure. But about that point, I uh, lose, I lose consciousness essentially. Uh -huh. It's like I fell asleep. But yeah, could, I know, and if I, uh, I don't know, I haven't had that happen again very many times since then where I'm still aware, but, um, anyway, I'm, I know it's scary though, to be in the sleep paralysis and it's a, it's definitely something that's turned people off to meditation in the past because they didn't know exactly what it was, or even sometimes you have the experience of seeing entities and stuff whenever you're in the sleep paralysis. So that's pretty intense for some people. Yeah. 
Well, it was just like, I, I didn't have any guidance or anything. This was before, like, I mean, this was the nineties. So the internet was there, but it wasn't as like vibrant and easy to access things as maybe now, you know? So I was just like, okay, I'm done with this. But, um, yeah. So after I got out of practice of it, unfortunately, like I remember just years later, somebody saying like, well, you know, like, because I was like really, I had like anxiety or something. I can't remember. I was like really anxious. And I was like, man, I should get back into meditation and chill myself out or whatever. And I, I remember one of my friends just saying like, well, meditation isn't, you know, it, it, it's not the most effective when you're using it to treat something. It's more effective if you're like just doing this regular preventive maintenance, like just like, you know, you need to go to sleep for mental health. Like, you, you should probably meditate just for mental health or just give yourself a break and like practice being calm. Cause you get bad at being calm if you don't practice it, you know, just like anything. Right. Oh yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, especially everybody, I was going to say, especially certain people, but then I was like, no, that's basically applies to everybody. Yeah, especially humans. <laughs> we really get on this topic a lot on this show and I'm not going to apologize for it, but I do know that, I've heard like really smart Buddhists say that you don't need to talk about meditation if mm -hmm. you do it. Like there's no points talking about it. But I don't know if I agree with that because mm -hmm. I would really hope that at least one person thought, okay, maybe I could get a handle on some of the chaos in my mind. But it is scary to some people to think of just sitting yeah. and closing your eyes, which and some people, and I know because I've been there in my life in the past, like I can't, I couldn't at some points back in the day, even hang out in a quiet room. I'd like have to turn wow. some sound on. It wasn't like all the oh, time, yeah. but every once in a while, I'd just be like that creeping dissatisfaction of being alive. <laughs> that is part of humanity that you just have to basically counteract through living your intentions all mm -hmm. the time. That can be really oppressive if you haven't sat and looked at it when you sit and look at it it basically dissolves instantly but whenever mm -hmm. it's just like whenever you i don't know things are always bad whenever you want to ignore them and like push them to the side and that includes the feeling the weird gnawing abyss within yeah <laughs> i mean i kind of i kind of feel like the the thing like the I mean, one interpretation of this Buddhist thing, the Buddhist saying that he says, like, well, I think maybe among people who already have some level of acceptance of what meditation is, that sure, there's maybe not much point in going into super huge details. But like, I think you're right. I mean, I think for just like people that are maybe casually listening that are like, oh, I've heard about this thing. Like it could make you, you know, way happier. And it's not like it costs money or has any sort of negative effects. You may as well try it and. And then maybe you don't like it, whatever, move on, <laughs> you know, but I think just like, you know, reminding people like, Hey, this, is, this helps a lot of people out. And it's, uh, just look up a good easy. guided meditation. Yeah. Um, that's a yeah. great way to start. I learned from actually having a class where a professor got us to meditate, which was kind of life changing actually, because I was forced to do it. <laughs> and <laughs> it was so cool. Meditation is like you're saying, it's a, preventative maintenance thing. Yeah. How I feel is that it's just a way of building this self-discipline mm -hmm. and self-control and yeah. um, control over any feeling or emotion that arises. And ultimately awareness is what is defeating all of those potential pitfalls of being a human by having a lot of awareness because you're sitting there and just paying attention to what it feels like to sit there and feel yourself you can kind of 
really quickly start to see how the mind is just this information picking up a receiver thing and you're just watching it as opposed to identifying with all the thoughts that are going through your mind at every second and thinking that all those feelings are really you Mm -hmm. like emotions. You should feel your emotions. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm saying be a robot, but you should also always be like as a, as a human being, it's a part of the power of being a human being that you can actually create this, mirror of yourself to yourself where you go i'm feeling this but i'm looking at myself feeling this mm-hmm. it's like i know that i'm feeling it's like i know that i know that i know that i know you know like well, this, you can always just sort of back up another level from yourself it's that whole like self-referential thing that that infinite regression where you're like okay well i am the thing that's thinking about me <laughs> which is thinking about me which is thinking about me you know and that's why there's so many human beings (laughs) because we're just a big hall of mirrors well yeah you know physics level yeah well that's um i don't know if you ever read any douglas hofstadter or if he's please elaborate because i have not and i'm sure a lot of people haven't oh my gosh okay this this is one of the big impacts on my life uh it's like seventh grade so my dad loves books and this is like a People are like, oh yeah, we have we have we have like rooms that are filled with books, like filled meaning you have to walk sideways because books <laughs> are on like cinder block shelves stacked all the way to the ceiling, like books to the point where it like probably helped to like damage my parents' foundation, like rooms of books, like it's nuts. Anyways, so <laughs> books are always churning around my house, and there's this book in a pile by the stairs that was um douglas hofstetter is girdle escher bach the eternal golden braid so okay you probably know who bach and escher are but you might not know girdle so girdle is the guy that came up with the quote-unquote incompleteness theorem and i can't i can't quote it specifically but like essentially it says any sufficiently complicated system for determining like truth is necessarily incomplete and I'm sure anybody who actually knows the statement of the theorem would blast me for such a rough translation, but it's some, it's something like that. So, you know, well, like, the paraphrase makes sense. It resonates. Yeah. Like you take like formal logic, like, you know, if this, then that, and P or Q, all the stuff you learn, like basic philosophy class. If you set up any system like that, that has sort of any teeth at all, it's going to have true statements that you can't verify. And well, there's always, basically there's always a primary assumption well i mean even even aside from that like if if you have it if you have like accepted axioms that like things that are just true there are going to be statements that are more complicated than your axioms that oh man it's the cats man um yeah we might need to like evacuate the cats out of here (laughs) it's all good but like so you get this um you get this book by Douglas Hofstetter and what he does is he explains all sorts of stuff like from like it's, it's essentially talking about computer science and philosophy and mathematics, but he brings in art and music and this, this logic stuff, this girdle and completeness theorem and um, Buddhism and all these different things. And he just explains so many things Um like we were talking about Watchmen earlier, how it how it touches on so many issues, but like 
metaphorically, he, he just like straight up is like, here's, this is, this chapter is going to be about, you know, this thing. And one, one of his big things is that like he builds up sort of a model for consciousness based on this self-referential thing. Oh, so the way that Gödel breaks any system that you give him is with self-referential statements. So, um, you know, the barber of Seville, this is like paradox, also Russell's paradox. Explain that also. It's, it's like, um, so one way to say it is this sentence is false. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? If that sentence is true, then it's false, which means it has to be false, but that makes it true. So it's, you know, it's a problem, right? Well, so Russell's paradox uh, is typically explained as like there's this barber in Seville and basically he shaves everyone that doesn't shave themselves. So does he shave himself? Because uh, if he shaves himself, then he is a person that shaves himself. So he, so he can't. But that means he doesn't shave himself, which means he's shaved by the barber of Seville, which is him. <laughs> but so uh, Hofstetter has he also has another book called I Am a Strange Loop. And this is what he calls this like I am the thing thinking about me that is thinking about me, whatever, you know, like that infinite regression is is sort of like I don't want to like misstate somebody else's claims or like oversimplify them. But Gertle Shabak is super fun. It's every every chapter is like a two to three page dialogue between Tortoise and Achilles. That's just super goofy. So they're like, oh, look, there's a flag over there. Hey, but that's weird. There's a piece of fabric in the flag that's not attached to the rest of the flag. Well, how is it flapping in the breeze? And just this sort of hokey dokey thing. And they'll introduce their little adventure will introduce some topic of discussion. And then he talks about it. it, it, It's like like it would be like reading like a math book or something, but he's very conversational. So it's not like refer to theorem A and the proof of lemma B. It's more just like, (laughs) well, tortoise and Achilles were dealing with this. You found it in seventh grade. Yeah. What a mind screw. Have you ever heard of the term shelf elf? Oh, yeah. Like you just like the the book that you need to see appears and stuff like that. Yeah. Like might even fall off the shelf right in front of you. But the way you're describing, you're just walking through chaos and then that's what jumps out at you. you. You described the books in your house as churning. And I was like, sounds like shelf elf. Yeah. Well, it's um. so my, my mother's a reading teacher and my father studied middle English literature. So like, oops, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of books around. It was like, yeah, I was an English major. I read a fair amount of books for school. And yeah. so um, it's kind of a fascinating thing though when you think about how Short of a time, we've actually been transmitting information in mass this way, written, <sighs> right? Like a very short time. Yeah. So that's actually why I'm so gung ho about podcasting is because in my personal experience, it's actually a much better way for me to absorb information, mm. especially like audiobooks are pretty good. Yeah. Um, especially like you can take in a story really well that way. Mm-hmm. Um, short bursts of non-fictional one person talking are okay like it's, it's okay but at that point i might almost rather read it yeah yeah uh, but but conversations your mind engages with them in a different way where it's like you might not actually it. jump in and say something because you're just listening passively but for me anyway i listen to a fuckload of podcasts that's why i even started one yeah i'm always sitting there like 
reacting as if I could jump in and say something. Yeah, like, li- it's like a certain type of attentive listening where it's a little more engaged than just listening to like a TV show where it's so scripted. Sure. No, man. When I, when I listen to your podcast, I frequently like say things that like I don't know if I necessarily say them out loud, but like yeah, like nod my head like oh yeah yeah and, <laughs> yeah. It's like you're right there, kind of. Yeah, and it's it's like. And that's how humans have been transmitting information for the majority of the time is through like the oral tradition. And Mm -hmm. that's how mythology is actually came down from one person to another. That's how science actually had to be encoded in prehistory was through stories that basically brought everything into a metaphor that made sense, but still contained the mechanics that they needed to convey. Yeah. I mean, that's what science is. I mean, it's, metaphors i mean i know that the people will like defend the scientific process and i totally agree with that but in particular what you're saying is that your metaphor is right more often than the old metaphor i mean i mean it's a type of really, priestcraft yeah sure and in modern religion in a sense i mean yeah, oh, i definitely agree because i mean especially like right now so there's this sort of uh what, what do you call intelligentsia or literati or whatever fancy term you want to put who are doing things like saying like, Oh, well there's this new particle that has these properties. I'm like, Oh really? Like at some point I'm taking it on faith. Like I get that it could All be. All of it you're taking on faith. Yeah, I, I'm not a flat earther or anything, but I haven't been in outer space to see if the earth is really a globe. Yeah. I believe the pictures. Yeah. But like I'll believe some convincing evidence, but still like, there's so many things we just take for granted about right. what we were taught when we were kids. And so many things that we were taught ended up being either so backwards or like the opposite ended up I being know. really useful that it makes you wonder about even the thing, the other things that you're taking for granted still. Yeah. Like how much is really backwards? Well, and I mean, so like you, you think about so many of these things, like, for example, more, more time is passed, or I shouldn't say more. I don't know if it's more, but certainly a comparable amount of time has passed between the time that I was born and DNA was discovered. And now, right. Like that's kind of nuts. Like uh, DNA to me is just this like, well, yeah, it's always been understood, but no, like there are people alive who remember time before that was even a thing, you know? What's weird for me is like when I look back at my childhood about the time that I came into you know, out of like small childhood and into real self-awareness, which, you know, occurs pretty young. You can Mm -hmm. say like nine, 10. Yeah. Uh, That's about the time the internet was really emerging. And that kind of, that way of thinking through Google and all that, that's totally like my, that's totally how my brain works. And it's interesting because there's never been a generation of humans, at least in our data set that, have had this sort of extended consciousness experience where you can literally reach out and communicate with anybody anywhere in the world. I mean, this is the first time I've done an episode with somebody in Springfield in my house for, well, I guess I did one with Austin a little while back, but I've been calling people in Australia and Japan and like all over the place. It's fucking awesome. But it's also such a new thing that uh, I feel like we barely even we barely even take in the ramifications of it, but you could, you could possibly point to this type of hyperconnectivity that's occurring as the human, the human spirit catching up to its level of technology, like our humanity yeah. catching up to our technology, because the more connected we get and the more we're able to communicate openly and freely, the less we any of us really feel like being racist or uh, well, shitting on other nationalities or anything like that. Yeah. Like, 
I was, I was so psyched. I was telling my wife last night that, you know, I was at band practice and we would like had run through the set and we're like just taking a break and I pull up my phone and I got a text message and then a line chat message. And, uh, the text message was from my buddy Sahil in, in India. And he's like, Hey man, I got, I got a question I want to ask you, you know, hit me up when you get a chance. And I'm like, Oh, what's up? And then I go and check the line chat and it was a friend of mine in Cambodia and they were both asking me the same question. There, there's like, there's a, you know, there, there was an account for sale and they're like, Hey, are you interested in getting a max account? I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, for, for Clash Royale. I'm like, I, I'm really happy just playing how I am. But it was so cool that like my two boys were looking out. They're like, Hey, you're a good player. And you know, but nobody's really giving you the, the super steal yet. So like, do you want to, you want in on the, on the high stakes action? I'm like, no, I'm cool. But it's like, a dude in Cambodia and a dude in India are like looking out, you know, they're like, Hey man, I found this for you. <laughs> like they're your boys. Yeah. They're my boys. You know, yeah, it's um, like if you play clash Royale and you need to be hooked up with a great leader, Steve, <laughs> is the, the dictator general for you. He's a yeah, philosopher yeah. King <laughs> of some of, you know, wide renown, worldwide renown. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. We are talking about video games a lot, but it's kind of interesting that you have, through what I misjudged to be kind of like a shallow phone game, yeah. you actually have deep relationships with people across the world. I mean, like as deep as playing a game with someone can be, but that's actually, in my opinion, it's a pretty deep relationship yeah. because maybe it's like on the surface, you're not getting too involved with each other's personal lives or anything, but like, what is all that anyway, other than a narrative that we live out and it's not that we don't love our families. I definitely love my family and sure. all that basic stuff. But like none, none of those, no, no aspect of any part of my daily life could possibly contain or define the, like what we actually are as beings, you know, sure. all the human stuff is essentially a big temporary thing until we figure out what's after that. Well, like, <laughs> and, but like whenever you're at play, yeah. you're just you're sort of just doing what you want and having fun. And a lot of that identity stuff is pushed to the side. So it is very much like a real you interacting with the real them. It's not shallow at all. That's where I was going with it. Yeah. That's, I was going to say like, uh, I, I, I received a bunch of instruction from this, from learning the literal translation, uh, or I shouldn't say literal or what I was told was a translation of, uh, the Chinese word or the Chinese term for the game go. So there's this ancient, Asian game called Go. It's the wooden squares with the black and white stones. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen it. Like it was in the movie Pi. It's like it was in Beautiful Mind. It's always like a math thing, whatever. So I, I started playing Go at a relatively young age. And um, so I've read lots of books on Go and played a lot online, got Go tournaments and stuff. But um, the Chinese call, instead of calling it Go, because it's a Japanese name for or Ego, um, they call it Wei Chi and Wei Chi. And uh, I don't know the accents or whatever, but it translates to hand talk. And what it is, it's a conversation you have with someone with your hands. And that, like I said, like I received instruction from this because I was thinking about like, so I think about poetry or any time that you constrain yourself to a particular medium is you're like, okay, I have a signal and I want to accentuate part of my signal by muting the other frequencies. Right. So I'm going to like, mute out various frequencies and try to try to distill this message into a few words when I'm writing a poem or, or whatever. Right. That's one, I think that's one way to think of it. So 
when you're playing a game of go with someone, you've got this channel to communicate. And not only are you having like an extremely intimate communication with someone's like ego, right? Because like you said, like your family is subtracted, your, how your face looks is gone from it. Cause it's just this, the stones on the board. It's just this binary thing. Yeah. But more than that, you're also creating a collaborative work of art and you can go back and like watch someone like watch a game of go and you can like see people's personalities because there are a crazy number of permutations for possible game outcomes with go right yeah it's just it was actually a really big deal when one of the deep learning softwares recently (laughs) defeated uh defeated a go champion yeah this was like so even those of us who've read up oh that was another in the griddle usher bach another big thing that douglas hofstetter is into is artificial intelligence um and what could that mean whatever but um so the sort of ai community has for a long time said like okay we're going to beat humans at chess but we're we're not going to beat humans at go anytime soon like it was orders of magnitude more complicated because there's so many more moves and the way that yeah. ai was working at that time was brute force right so basically it would learn by having to do like run every possible outcome in its equation and then look at the probabilities of right. uh, winning based on certain moves in certain configurations and because the chessboard has only so many configurations that the pieces can fit into it's a fairly small number compared to the number of possible configurations that the go pieces can be in. And so to actually learn in that brute force way was just literally took too much processing power because we're talking about like billions, trillions of combinations. No. So in both games, there are more possible games than atoms in the universe. So there would be no way for like a conventional computer to even start to like store all the positions. So you have to do heuristics like, that's just all there is to it. But it was like orders of magnitude more between chess and go. And so I need uh, I need to ask why heuristics is. Oh, heuristics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, heuristic just means like. Um, actually, wow, shoot. I don't know if I have a good definition. Like it's like a general idea as opposed to like computing exactly the right answer. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, if, if I said like. You know what's what's 237 divided by 25. You know you might not know exactly the right answer, but you're like I don't know. It should be around nine. You it's have almost this heuristic, like, like an approximation, right? So do you think for the machine it's more based on a bunch of rounding, or do you think like because for a human that's almost built into the intuition yeah. part of being a human. So that's sort of the weird thing about considering artificial intelligence do you create something that has the ability to intuit and if you can create intuition does that mean that you're giving it creativity yeah i don't know (laughs) is that what defines the artificial intelligence as an intelligence i mean just because it can brute force calculate so many things that it's orders of magnitude faster at, at figuring things out than a human doesn't mean it has these very basic human traits that even someone with a low IQ possesses. Right. And, and that's actually one of the things that Douglas Hofstadter posits in uh, Gertelischer Bach that he later retracted um, was that he said, um, this was the seventies when he wrote the book, I think he said, I will consider machines intelligent when they can play chess like humans. Uh, and uh, I was actually, this was a really surreal thing. I had uh, one of my like, dudes that I really respect mathematically, um, Nets Katz, who's just like superhuman, amazing guy. Um, I had lunch with Nets Katz and Douglas Hofstadter at the same time. And Nets <laughs> was like, 
I, I really take issue with this stance because now humans are learning from computers because they, they've seen the moves that, that chess programs are doing and they're like, oh, these are innovative moves that will work against humans. And there are all there's this whole new dimension to play. And he's like, but you said that, you know, computers will be intelligent when they can play chess like a human. And he's like, look, I said that 30 years ago. I, I mean, I, I, Huh. The, the the games have changed, you know, and so it's it's funny. So that, give it another thirty years, and what is it going to be? Who knows? I mean, I mean, really, like, I mean, Turing test, Schmering test. At this point, like, <laughs> where do you see yourself thirty years from now? Oh, That's shoot. a good question. I mean, you're in pretty good shape. You'll still be around. Yeah, hopefully, still happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean. So you're happy now, though. That's great. Yeah, super happy. I, th- I think a lot of people go around and, and focus really hard on the things that are going wrong. And it's like, man, plenty, plenty of things have gone wrong in my life. There are plenty of things to complain about. I'm not like, you know, I'm not saying things are great. I'm just saying, like, I, I can I can be happy with with the things that make me happy and then try to work on the things that don't make me happy. You know, and that makes me happy that I'm working on them as opposed to ignoring them. Yeah, I see yeah. I see that as being a crucial part of human existence because there's one aspect of humanity there's a lot of aspects of humanity that might make them unique you could say but in terms of our role in nature if you are a human then you have the ability to look at nature and say you see a tree and there is some kind of like gnarly vine really choking out this mighty tree that's awesome and the vine is kind of you can tell that it's parasitic and it's all over the place and it's fucking up this awesome tree. Mm-hmm. The tree can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. It might have natural defenses against certain other types of problems, but this vine is fucking up the tree. Mm-hmm. So what can you do as a human? You can recognize that and actually fix the problem. You can like trim out the extra negativity. You can balance it out, you know, yeah. like that's, there's not a lot of, I mean, I'm sure there are other animals that do that through their natural evolutionary sense. And I wonder if there's that same kind of intuition that they're just beautifying the place when they do it. Yeah. Because, you know, there's things in the ocean that are learning to eat plastic. Yeah. So that being said, I don't want to necessarily limit that whole self-correcting aspect in nature that humans can bring to it whenever we're really hyper-conscious to just humans. But it is sort of like a really crucial aspect of being alive is being yeah. able to take care of those things that don't make life optimally beautiful and recognize them when they arise and not get, not be stuck with them. Yeah. Man, I, th- I think of, so like one, one sort of model for brain neurons is like you got brain neurons. <laughs> brain is, neurons. Is a, uh, you got, you're like, the fast response and the slow response and you have your inhibitors and you have your exciters. So like there's a signal that wants to come through and this neuron either switches off and on quickly or it switches off and on slowly. And then signals either make things switch off or make things switch on. They get a very basic level. This is one sort of model for kind of ones and zeros model. Yeah. But, but like fast and slow. And I like to think about, Maybe trees are because they're impacting the environment, you know, um, all, all things are. But trees are more like the slow change neurons and you need slow changes and you also need fast changes. 
you know, because that, that makes for a much, uh, much more powerful system. There are even other slower changing neurons in the earth as well. Like just look at crystals and mineral systems that yeah. make up the earth's crust. Those take very long time to evolve and to create themselves, but they also hold coherent patterns and in a sense, coherent information sure. once they form. So they're slow to form, but they're like long-term memories in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't necessarily think it's woo woo to think that crystals do hold some kind of past information. I'm not necessarily ready to say that I could pick up a crystal and get a message from Atlantis because that's not, I've never had that experience. People yeah. claim those kind of experiences, but I've never had that kind of experience. Yeah. I have felt, I have felt energy when I've held crystals and I've also had heightened experiences of intuition with certain types of crystals where it does feel like there might be the possibility that I'm drawing out some kind of information from within through, I know it sounds really woo, but like, I'm no, it's a cat, a cat, like tick the no. nails. Like, Whoa. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that for the audience. It sounds pretty woo, but we were, me and Steve were just talking about earlier about the magnetic nature, the electro electromagnetic nature of the heart and of the body and how there's fields that are generated around us at all times by our body. And, you know, everything basically has a frequency to it, a vibratory frequency because all matter is vibrating at one rate or another. And those frequencies might be well under the range of being audible, for example, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't possibly be waves that are hitting the waves of your electromagnetic field and causing wave disruption or wave cohesion, some kind of positive or negative interference, harmonics or dissonance, essentially, no. just like music, because and that's why a lot of uh, occult systems or spiritual systems use musical metaphors or music tones and things like that in their uh, ceremonies or in their, you know, attempt to create certain effects because you could knock down a bridge if you had the right frequency. Oh, uh, yeah. Did you see that thing on Mythbusters? No. Where they did uh, the – so I think it was Tesla came up with a – earthquake device and it was like basically a two pound weight that you what you do is you'd have to like um you have to like figure out what the fundamental frequencies of a, of a structure would be uh -huh. and then you you set up this like it was like two pound weight like a, that magnetically shoots back and forth that you tune it to that frequency and they, they're like all right well let's see if this is legit so they put it on a bridge and they're like, I don't think anything's going to happen. And then you see their faces light up. They're like, holy crap, we need to stop this. <laughs> I mean, it, it took like, I think it took like an hour or something before it started to actually do it. But like, like harmonic motion is, is not that complicated if you think about it. It's like it, things are connected. And if one part of a thing moves, well, the other part of the thing can't move immediately. So like as thing as like the left side of, of something is moving up, well, it's dragging the right side, which is slowing it down. But then the right side is moving. So now that's going to have an effect on the left side. So like this sort of cyclical thing makes sense. Like whether you're, whether you're smacking your head against a tree to make a, a thud noise or whether you're, you know, what, whatever air particles moving in the air, bumping into each other freely back and forth. It's just such a natural thing. That's what the Hindus would call the web of Indra, which wow. is the, the conceptualization of a net or a field of frequency that interconnects 
all things in the entire universe. It's essentially like the medium that we're all resonating upon in a sense. Um, and, or it could just be the interconnected wave patterns of the different vibrations that are emitted by everything that's matter. Yeah. I mean, all those things are sort of like radiating outward, like the way that a star does because mm-hmm. sound radiates outward. I mean, it might dissipate if it loses its energy after a certain point, but there's an entire spectrum of sound all the way up to light waves that go so, so far beyond our perceptual abilities mm-hmm. that it's very hard to, to conceive of how those things interact with one another and affect it affect other parts of the wavelength yeah and it's it's pretty like arrogant to assume that well we can see everything that's going on because it's like well except we totally can't totally can't so (laughs) Um, it's entirely possible that things that we do in our physical world could possibly affect a part of the wavelength of reality that's outside of our perception which is kind of strange to think about. Well, I mean, the like, you know, nuclear waste, you know, oh, that's just a barrel sitting there. That's probably not completely ruining whatever's happening. Man, that's scary to think about. Do you know what's going on in Fukushima still? Uh, I, heard, I heard, I saw something in the headlines recently that, they, that like the whatever levels are up. Yeah, the levels are up. Like, yeah. it's been a while. The levels should be going down. The yeah. levels are up. It's pretty weird. Um, the Pacific is super super irradiated that we're definitely all going to want to start thinking about ways to reduce radiation levels in our bodies on a regular basis there are things you can i I didn't catch that well if you look at like a radiation map of what's leaked into the pacific ocean Uh it's basically at the point where they have lost the ability to make a an accurate projection about what it's going to do to the planet i mean oh i did not catch that yeah there's like there's massive die-offs of marine life all to the point where like biblical scholars are saying it's the book of revelations and stuff like it's, it's, ugly. it's ugly. We should definitely as a world be thinking, what can we do about Fukushima? And so I don't know if we're, if we're all connected in this big web of vibratory frequencies and you know, you can sort of inject your own flavor of frequency into the web through your intention and what you choose to feel and emit. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we should all like collectively try to emit some fix, get well soon vibes to Fukushima. <laughs> like, yeah. come on, guys, you could do it. <laughs> Man, I, I didn't, I didn't catch that last piece. That's that's brutal. So the radiation levels are like. Okay, I don't know the unit of measure. Do you know what it's called? The the measure oh, that they remember. there's some unit of measure. Google it, somebody. It's like Geiger scales, at bars or rads or something. Whatever the unit of measure is, it's the one where it takes three to kill you. Yeah. So the they're over like 500 now in the the deep zones. So it's so bad that the robots that they send in just to take pictures down there and try to be like, what the hell's going on? We're just taking some pictures, y'all. The robots are melting. <laughs> so. No way. I have no <laughs> not, idea. So that, it's not good. Um, I don't, I'm joking and laughing, but I'm like, really, it's just that sort of defensive humor where it's like, shit, this is crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, it, 
what, what else can you do? Right. Your, your yeah. brain can't, can't really cope with like all the big negatives. So it's like, okay, we're going to insulate this. You know, the white blood cells are going to come out chuckles. Yeah. You know, it's pretty unfathomable. Yeah. Well that in the Amazon, you know, like <laughs> good luck. <laughs> the Amazon, uh, the deforestation yeah, is the, yeah, the, so far along at this point. It's uh, and again, I mean, everybody. This is one problem: is like everybody that is willing to put in the effort and the energy to to analyze something like that probably has a dog in the fight. So it's like if somebody wants to prove one thing, I mean, shoot, I'm a, I'm a math guy. I know I know all about how to massage numbers to say whatever you want to say. You know, so people can say whatever they want to say with numbers, but like. Absolutely. I'm I'm more scared now than I was in like the 90s when the, when it was like in vogue to be all worried about the Amazon and holding. We well, just look at pictures songs. of the planet from space and that's, go, that's the thing. oh, that looks different now. That, that's that's the thing that convinced me is, is looking at the satellite images and I was like, oh, like I I mean I know how things go, and it's it just gets accelerating, you know, it's real bad. Yeah, and an issue with. Not to be like party poopering right now with this conversation topic, but another issue with the rainforest is it's not like around here in Missouri where if you burn down a forest, give it two years and it looks like yeah. it did right before you burned it down. It mm. that that type of soil does not respond well to the clear cutting, and in fact, the places where they even try to replant it does not come back with the same type of vegetation and the animal life never comes back because a lot of times it's such a dense, such a, such dense clusters of micro ecosystems that go on there that there are literally species that only exist within a five mile radius. And that's very, it's a very, I mean, you could say it's a, we've lost a resource on the planet. We're losing the lungs of the planet, all those things. But we're also just like creating murder and mayhem and it like, why do we want to homogenize everything and make everything into shopping malls and burger joints? It seems boring. We have a lot more potential as a species to create basically an infinite culture of variety based on where you're at in the world. And not that we need to celebrate differences in a way that is divisive, but I think we should each celebrate our uniqueness and in a, the fact that it unifies us actually, because trying to make this culture of conformity is ironically the most div divisive thing that happens because because you're, people are so obsessed with creating conformity in their life to a group identity, they end up um, separating themselves from all these other perceived group identities and as opposed to the sort of counterculture eclectic everybody is a renaissance person type of mentality where yeah you cultivate a lot of uniqueness in yourself but you do it with a community of other people who are also cultivators and so that unifies you all because you're you know fighting the good fight together yeah so it's it's kind of a strange paradox like you we get individualism as soon as we start living holistically and in holistic communities yeah. in a strange way you know i'm not like advocating communism but i think we should all consider smaller homes and more shared spaces and you know 
living in smaller clusters as far as this city density population thing goes. Yeah, and it gets like to be like a, a more topable tower when you have things like, you know, like for example, if, if there's a food shortage in, say, New York City, like how many days before it would be literally anarchy, you know? I mean, even in Springfield, it wouldn't be uh, pretty after just a few days. But a city like New York, you're basically talking about The Walking Dead after yeah. I mean, it would, it would be hours. it would be very bad. Um, yeah, but, I think we look. I think it's very possible that humanity has gone through cycles of really advanced cultures and knowledge and science and technology. And I think the reason why we don't see these ruins of skyscrapers from civilizations past is because they were smart enough to not do things the way we're doing this. Like it doesn't, it's not, if you're going to put animals in a zoo and you consider humans to be basically in a domesticated state and in a zoo, whenever you're living in a city, then don't you want to at least make the zoo resemble their evolutionary environment as much as possible and give them as much of the stimulus of their evolutionary environment as possible for them to be happy and healthy and like develop properly? Yeah, I don't know. Like, like my, my wife loves cities. Like she grew up in Mexico city. That was like the biggest city in the world for a while. And it's so she's, she's like here now. She, I mean, she's really happy in Springfield, but like, that's that's like the environment in which she thrives and to me that's so confusing like i love like i go to new york every every may for a, a conference and i love going there for like a week but after like a week i'm like okay i've had enough of other people's like funk on me like mm -hmm. i've I experienced mean, it just from when i lived in an apartment building before yeah and back then i was less conscious of my personal energy you could say and of other people's energy and i'm I've come to realize I'm a really sensitive person and can kind of pick up on other people's moods and emotions and things like that. And early on, figuring that out actually came from the fact that I was such a chameleon of a human when I was younger. And like yeah. whatever, whatever the people I was around were like, I just acted that way. It made me think I didn't even have a personality. And then once you just thought that because they thought that. <laughs> well, no, people like me because I, uh, I basically just reflected back at them what they liked. Yeah. So it, it worked for me as far as like, a, I mean, I just basically went from click to click when I was in, younger in school and never really needed any one social group to belong to Yeah. and could just jump from one group to another, even groups that didn't necessarily like each other. Mm -hmm. So, and that was fine. It didn't like bum me out until sort of that awkward angsty phase between 18 and 21 where you realize you're not at all prepared for adulthood and you don't know what you want to do that well or you don't have your shit together at all not everyone has necessarily yeah. gone through that but when i was going through that phase it was also like the unhealthiest phase of my life physically uh, i gained a lot of weight like just eating a lot of patty melts in the dining halls in college oh no so i, I literally ballooned up to 260 pounds. If you know me, I'm like 170. So mm. that's a crazy weight gain, maybe even more than that. So anyway, what ended up defeating that for me was meditation and learning to meditate and reducing stress in my life and changing the way I thought about things. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know where I was rambling with that. <laughs> We're just talking about like the energy, like oh, density yeah, of yeah. cities, you know, like yeah, so, so much conscious energy. So, so when I was in that sort of depressed state, though, and I really got isolated because of a relationship I was in, I started to think the reason I couldn't make friends or really get interested into anything because I was because I didn't have my own personality. I thought there was like something wrong with me because I had been such a chameleon with a chameleon, as I said, like a mimic of my friends that I was close with when I had a lot of friends in high school and stuff that was fine. But then whenever you put that into a, you're in a new place because you moved to us to college and you're in a sort of repressive relationship where you're lying to yourself and the other person about the fact that you should be in it at all. Um, it made me start to feel like it did make me start to feel like I wasn't like there was something weird going on with me. And it was only when I started meditating and gaining self-awareness that I could start to not identify with thoughts that came up. And then I could start to notice also because I was building awareness, um, what other, like empathize with what other people were feeling and just actually literally observe what they seem to be putting out there. I started making the connections to like, Oh, when somebody else is coming at me all charged up in a certain way, I start to feel that way. Yeah. And then, Oh, click. I'm just picking up on other people. I'm just really sensitive. That's sensitive to that. That's why I had those sort of mimicky traits. And once I figured that out and could start separating other people's personalities from myself, then I actually started to grow personality. Yeah. And I started to develop interest and in stuff. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, that's why it's so hard to even sell meditation as a tool, because I feel like for me, there's really no limit to the ways that my life has improved just from the one simple discipline of building self-awareness. Yeah. It's huge. There's a reason why, I mean, even in, just quiet contemplation in general seems to be really useful. I mean, like you could do it as a, it could be your way of praying if you are a Christian, for example, or um, any other sort of like theistic persuasion. Sure. Just the fact of like opening up that channel to uh, closing off your own mind and trying to like be absorbed in a higher mind. Of, in, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that might not necessarily be safe either. You could get kind of, caught up in dogmatic yeah i mean but i know what you're saying it's just like the idea of of not taking at least what i'm taking from what you're saying is the the idea of not taking your thought processes for granted you know and just like i'm gonna take a step back being the witness of your thoughts instead of being um, the being the thoughts yeah and just just existing for a minute and like yeah it in whatever's you know some people want to focus on one thing or another you know that's fine whatever but yeah just sort of taking a step back you know you think about like if if your mind is is like a muscle or an organ i mean it is an organ but if you think of it like a muscle if you use a muscle really hard it gets to fatigue and then it doesn't work so well and it's the same thing with your mind and like sleep does a lot of you know rest i mean it helps your brain but like i think meditation also helps and it's you know i'm sort of biased but i think it's it's another sort of like active um like awareness of the maintenance as opposed to just sort of passing out and letting it happen you know well if you relate it to the idea that possibly we have a physical body and an energy body maybe physical sleep isn't actually restful for 
the energy body. Yeah. Because especially if your energy body is getting launched out of your physical body and going on adventures that you don't even remember <laughs> the next day because your physical body is asleep recording, not recording the events. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe meditation is like the way of resting that other part of yourself. The Because there's human you and then there's the witness of the human you. Mm-hmm. You can always take that step back and be one further remove from yourself in a weird way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's also the, like, I like the title of that one book you brought up. Uh, I, am a, book? I am a strange, oh, I'm loop. A strange loop. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I often trip out about that very fact. I mean, like I've had psychedelic experiences and dreams where I've wound up in inner space seeing this crazy, hall of mirrors that are running parallel to each other where I look down one side and the other side and there's just like infinite mm-hmm. me's and some and even variations of me in the mirror and it's like super super weird it's a place I've been to a bunch of times and um, who knows maybe it's like some kind of nexus in the wavelength where these versions of these you know alternate versions of my life that exist on this infinite yeah. looping frequency intersect at one point in time, uh, you know, in the inner space thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you buy into the parallel universes thing, you can think of that as just watching the different you split off into the, I, I don't like the, I don't like the phrase parallel universe cause there'd be like sort of necessarily not parallel but nearly parallel you know it's like uh-huh. it's like at every point there's an infinite number of branches so it's, so it's more like a just very bushy timeline yeah, tree. it's not parallel because the branch would mean that there's a connection at a root yeah so i've kind of come to this thought about the parallel universe thing that maybe it's built around uncertainty and mm-hmm. that having uncertainty in certain types of experiments creates multiple outcomes Oh yeah, like the so, like the the what's it what's the Schrodinger's cat? Yeah, yeah. So it's maybe uh, maybe having uncertainty about your life, looking back at certain things and um, being stuck in a mindset of what if it was like this? Yeah, you could be creating alternate versions of yourself if like if you look at your consciousness uh, with the metaphor of it being some sort of cloud computing device where mm-hmm. your physical body is just one platform that's hooked up to a larger sure. network. Um, maybe if it's an infinite network, then wherever, if you're sent, then if you're sending, if you have awareness of a potentiality and you're really holding that awareness, then you're possibly in a way causing it to exist somewhere else in the network in a weird mm-hmm. way. So like you could be creating these branching versions of your experience based on not being satisfied with your experience or being uncertain about certain outcomes. And like people that go through self-authoring courses and go through and rewrite or write their life story starting mm-hmm. from childhood and do it from the perspective of like a compassionate, omniscient narrator, narrator, yeah. they experience literal energetic boosts. Like they're less tired. They have more mental focus. It's like their processing power gets freed up. In a, yeah. weird, in a way, I, I was going to say it sounds to me like they're just like not using some. Yeah, the processing power gets freed up. That sounds really nice. But it's so I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have branches 
in your mind of potential ways to go. You know, you're running a B test experiments in your mind on certain things. Sure. Totally. But like any plant, just sort of the metaphor back to humans being a gardener. And that's sort of the purpose of our existence. You do have to prune certain branches off. Mm-hmm. You have to look and see where it's an unhealthy branch, where it's sapping energy from the rest of the tree. And I think maybe it's possible to even prune your own life into such a place that there's little to no uncertainty. And I would call that living your truth or living your soul's purpose in a way. Mm. It's a, those type of people that are really on their path and really that, you know, that's where happiness comes from. Actually, in my opinion, like that's, that's where real energy and uh, passion and inspiration comes from having that certainty that you're doing what you want to be doing or, or, or like that you're like accepting to a high degree where it's, it's not like I'm making, I'm not like telling I'm not foretelling the future. Like I know what I'm going to be doing. It's just, you get to that point where you're like, okay, I, tomorrow is a Friday. Friday is only my research day, but I'm, I'm going to take uh, my wife's car in cause she's got to travel. I'm going to take it in get it inspected and all that kind of stuff. Like, is that like the number one thing that I would ever want to do in my life? No, but I'm like happy about it. Cause I'm just accepting what comes. And it's like, Oh man, tomorrow's going to be a great day. I'm going to take my wife's car in to the shop like what so i don't necessarily know what's gonna happen i'm just like i'm okay with it if something non-optimal happens and that's too bad but i think it's like if if you're not constantly trying to imagine things being better or like trying to figure out you know once you've gotten i think like decently good at life Uh then you don't have to worry i think about like rock climbing like if you're climbing a route and you're sitting there like constantly thinking about like, oh, which move should I do next? And you're just hanging out on holds. You're going to you're going to get tired, you know, by the same token, if you don't plan ahead, then that's not going to work out either. So you've got to like find probably that, fall. Yeah. You got to find that middle ground where you're like not not trying to predict the future, not trying to like control everything, but also like, just, I don't know, in a good spot. <laughs> Just do the cat. Yeah. Sorry, Haley. Um, you're riding. It's like surfing is a good metaphor for life. You're riding that cresting wave between order and chaos. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if everything's too predictable, well, that's not fun. If nothing's predictable, well, that's not fun. So you want to kind of set it up to where you're not constantly second guessing things. You want to plan a little bit, but not also not just completely trying to plan every moment because then you'll be upset when things don't go your way, you know? So... If the, let's play with this idea, consciousness could be infinite and all encompassing within everything, but it could possibly create these whirlpools in a sense of perspective where like if you give water as the metaphor, mm-hmm. a whirlpool forms and the vortex, the point at the bottom of the vortex is where your conscious perspective is so consciousness normally would be contain would be contained all containing this entire ocean all of it mm. feeling itself all at once but then these whirlpools you could say that like the surface of the sides of the whirlpool are reflective and that's where you get that self-referential mirroring effect mm. and you also get only the information and experiences that are contained within the water of your whirlpool 
or the energy currents that pass through and affect your whirlpool. Yeah. In that sense, we're all literally the same thing, this Mm. ocean, but experiencing itself from all these different perspectives of single pointed sure uh vortexes in a sense that's kind of cool yeah um i'd like i know you like to read so i would recommend i I really like this philosopher who's also like a ai scientist and Uh really good just metaphorician essentially named bernardo castrup oh shoot i I can point you to some of his audio material on podcasts and stuff where he comes on it sounds like fun uh really fun thought experiments of trying to create tangible metaphors like that for what consciousness is actually doing, what um, trying to undo the Gordian knot of materialistic science and reimagine things from the idealism perspective and idealism being the idea, not that it's basically the inverse of materialism. Materialism is the idea that there's an external physical universe and Mm -hmm. that there's matter there and there's a timeline there of events and within that random chaos, an emergent system was eventually developed and evolved that created the ability to be self-aware. Mm-hmm. And that's consciousness. So somehow through physical matter, consciousness is arising from the perfect configuration of that physical matter. Mm-hmm. And that, that physical matter got itself into that configuration by accident. That's, that's basically Western science's foundation mm-hmm. right now. Sure. So it's not good. That's kind of a bad, it's a bad assumption because um, really there's no, there's nothing to reality outside of experience and all experience happens within the mind. It's all subjective and internal. Mm -hmm. So all physicality, all, all physical reality is only knowable through experience in the mind. So that means it's a lot simpler to conjecture that the physical reality is actually generated by the mind, the feeling of the table, the the quality of the smell of something, all of that is within the mind. Just like you could, just like whenever you're in a dream state, um, you're having physical things happen. There Mm -hmm. are physical objects, but all of those are within only within your mind. Right. So basically the, it's a idea of a collective dream mm-hmm. that we're having a singular dream in a sense that, it, or you could look at it like you have uh, hosted nested levels of consciousness, kind of like a Russian dolls thing. Mm-hmm. There's billions of living entities within your body. Sure. So there could be billions of consciousnesses within a larger consciousness. Yeah. And then that consciousness could be, one of infinite within something larger. And it's just sort of an infinite looping yeah. circle. So, so uh, when I was an undergrad, I wanted to just touch on this. When I was an undergrad, Definitely. I did some, uh, what we called, what they, they called computational intelligence research. So this was like artificial intelligence, but with like more strictly defined goals and less, uh, less like, Oh yeah, we just want it to be like you know, like humanish, and it's more like okay, we've got a mobile robot with these specs. We want to make it get from point A to point B, and it's a hostile terrain or whatever, you know. So, but in in a good way, in an intelligent way, whatever. 
so I was at Mizzou and uh, we were working with these dudes at Vanderbilt. And so the, we were working with like neuroscientists and we were computer engineering people. And um, so we would do these, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Um, the group calls? What do you call those? Teleconferences. We'd do teleconferences where they'd have like a slideshow going and they'd be doing the thing or whatever. And so they were taking us through the models of consciousness, like the popular models of consciousness, like the high level, this is like, you know, university science, whatever. And in every model that they showed us, and this was, again, this is just the models that they showed to us un uncleansed, you know, engineering sorts. So maybe they're dropping things out. They're like, okay, here's the model for consciousness. So there's your working memory, there's your long-term memory, whatever. Then you have these inputs, you know, your sensory inputs, and then everything is controlled by the central executive. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Cool. So what's, you know, let's, what is the central? I, I get, you know, I get, okay, visual input. There are light waves. They hit rods and cones and then science happens through your lens and blah, blah, blah. And you can measure the electrical impulses. Sounds like the fascist model of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> well, but then, so, so what is the central executive? Like, oh yeah. So they peel open the central executive and they had like the main things that the central executive does and it's controlled by a, meta central executive i'm like wait a minute so they had the same infinite regression that was in the douglas hofstetter books that i read when i was a child that was like this is like university level science right and, and every cosmology requires a miracle foundation you have, to accept, point, you have yeah. to accept one miracle no matter what your cosmology is there has to be at least one foundational miracle so with idealism as opposed to materialism materialism's miracle is that Everything emerged out of nothing, and then somehow consciousness came into the picture. Now, the idealism miracle is consciousness exists. Mm -hmm. That's the and that is a lot easier to postulate as far as a, a given to be your foundation for your cosmology than it is to say there's an external universe and consciousness arose out of that physical configuration of matter randomly. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's everybody's got different it's models. Yeah. It's a simpler model. And like in science, yeah. you tend to want the, the simplest, simplest explanation, yeah. right? So like you're literally the only miracle you're asking for with idealism is consciousness exists. Sure. The physical world and experiences is within consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's to me, it's more elegant solution. To me, it solves like the hard problem of consciousness in neuroscience pretty well. It would yeah. explain like the brain itself is that configuration of of the medium that represents the vortex with ref like self-reflective self-reflectivity because it's yeah. this tangled knot of neurons that are bouncing back and forth mm -hmm. and it is an echoing chamber in and of itself because of the two-sided sure, hemispherical yeah. nature of it. Well, and like, you know, I, I think with, with any, anything sufficiently complex, it's you find the metaphors that work for you and that you can sort of like, push forward in a helpful way that aren't, you know, hurtful and, and whatnot. And then you just kind of go with it. Like, yeah. I, and always accept that it's incomplete. The yeah, model is yeah. always incomplete. Like you were saying before like with the incompleteness theorem. Yeah. It's like, and again, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's one of these terms, incompleteness theorem is one of these terms that's thrown around and like abused a lot, but like, I really do feel like at, at a certain point, I, I, you know, I'm interested in these things, but at a certain point I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say I for sure know what is X, Y, or Z. I'm like, okay, this makes sense to me. And I'm <laughs> chill there, you know, like, yeah, I've, I've brought this up on the show a lot recently, but like, I've been trying to, uh, 
let go of my epiphanies and not get attached to thinking that I've figured something out because oh, there's cool. basically always another level of it. And just for everyone that's heard <laughs> me bring up the whole releasing epiphanies thing a bunch of times lately, I'll skip to like where I'm at with it now. I think the best way to do it, um, cause before I was doing it only whenever I got stuck because of some idea that I had had previously in a moment of like, ah, uh, uh-huh. I got that idea stuck in my head. And then later it somehow caused me to get scared or think that things are limited in some way. Like yeah. it's hard to like, basically whatever, whenever you have an aha moment, it's always contextual to that now. Mm-hmm. And it might be true in that moment, but all truth is essentially relative to the, to the experience that you're having whenever it seems true. So, um, anyway, I, I don't want to be held back by conceptions or notions that I create for any reason. I mm-hmm. want to always be ready to like set myself aside and just be in the data that's there and just be really raw with that. Yeah. So the, the most up-to-date practice that I've managed to come up with for that is to start writing them down. Whenever I have these, whenever I have big aha moments or just at least once a day, basically getting, yeah. pen, getting to typing or pen to paper and uh, just like, what am I thinking right now? What, what, like where, like, what is my current cosmology? What's something that I believe is true. Yeah. Like what's, yeah. what is my current makeup of like the, what is the, what is life to me right now? What does it mean? Yeah. Dump it all out because then you have a record of it that you can come back to easily and reference and, your mind will be open to the next set of epiphanies because it's not holding on to that last one. Because whenever you do have these good ideas, there's a part of you that doesn't want to lose them. Mm-hmm. There's a part of you that's literally spending RAM of your, your uh, yeah. mental computer to hold on to that, to leave that word yeah. file. Open. No. So like whenever oh, yeah, you get yeah. your ideas out in For writing sure. or something, or even in podcasting counts to me as a way of getting yeah. it out. Oh, you're way creating of, a record. Yeah. A way of making it recorded so that like you, your brain is no longer afraid of losing that idea yeah. or that experience or whatever. And you're like, I can always revisit this so we can, we can delete it from the, you know, it's, it's like, for me, it's like pictures on my phone. Yeah, exactly. Thousands of pictures on my phone. No, I dump them to my computer and my external hard drive, but it's like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to delete that picture of my, you know, my wife and my kid. Cause I, I like looking at it, you know, I yeah. like having them around whenever I need, but it's like, okay, you know, maybe I hold on to that one, but I don't need the, I take like lots and lots of B reel for like videos and stuff. So like on my last trip, I have like, a minute of just clouds taken from the airplane, a minute of walking down a long hallway and like, uh-huh. okay, maybe I can delete those off my phone. They're on my computer. I can, I could probably part with that, you know, and then it, that, that frees up, like you said, like that frees up some of the memory and it frees up some of the brain power, you know, it's like, okay, that, for, for me, this is like, it's with, totally working for me because it's, they're flowing more rapidly yeah. now because I'm doing that. Maybe you can just say it's because you're, starting up a practice of creating that dialogue with yourself and thinking about what you yeah. think. So you are able to think about what you think more often. But for me, it, I conceptualizing it as this like data dump seems to work for me. I don't know. I, I really like that metaphor. Cause like, I remember when I first really internalized this, like, so I used to get like, um, shackled by ideas, particularly like song ideas. Like I would think of like, Oh yeah, I want to make this song. That's cool. And then maybe I'd write down like the idea or something, but not like, but sometimes it would just be oppressive. Like I couldn't, I couldn't think about any other song until that one was like, 
finished in some sense. So I have to like, okay, I've got to record this song so that my brain can move on. And it's this, it's the same thing with mathematics. It's the same thing with poems or any, any sort of quote unquote creative pursuit, whatever you want to, you know, whichever, how wide your bucket is on that. Like you got to oh, keep man, that river I've, of data I've, flowing. Yeah. I've, I've got to get this idea to a stable state so that, so that it's safe and I can, I can release it, let it float down the stream. You know, it's well, like back to the metaphor of the whirlpools on the ocean. Yeah. It's like, if you hold on to too many of these things, it slows down your whirlpool. Yeah. And then people that get so stuck in their ways that they can't change what they think at all, or they're not creating anything. They're not generative in any sense. That's where you really start to age and die. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, you'll see young people that look way older than they should. Yeah. And they'll essentially um, put that they'll put that focusing power that we have that putting an object between two mirrors and magnifying it in, infinitely on things that are self-destructive. I mean, we've all done it before. Yeah. So whenever you stay in your inspiration, you stay in your flow of what just whatever is fucking interesting to you. It doesn't have to be a specific thing. That is how you keep that vortex spinning rapidly. It's how you keep, I guess, um, you keep yourself cohesive, coherent as a, as a splintered off standing wave of consciousness on an ocean. Well, you want, you want to be strong and flexible. Yeah. And you can't be, if you're too flexible and you're not holding on to anything, then that's sort of this transient, you know, life, like viewpoints change every five minutes. That's, that's not very healthy, but also like just holding on to every perception as, you know, fact etched in stone is probably not healthy either. You want, you want to have like, again, like I think of it like the neurons, you want to have the fast switch and the slow switch, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and that can represent like, ideas that you hold on to for a long time that yeah. change slowly and ideas that you pick up and you test and then you immediately can discard if it, or discard the aspects of it that are not useful. So like, um, because even, even the biggest, most foundational aspects of science do change over time. Yeah. And those can, those are those slow twitch things. Like Newtonian physics is eventually no longer the, the only way that you conceptualize, you know, thinking about yeah. gravity and in a weird way, any explanation you create in science for something is only really a narrative in a sense, because and we did kind of say that it's all metaphors and narrative, but mm -hmm. whatever, whatever way you explain a thing, there's mm -hmm. always, well, how do you explain that? And yeah. then why is that? And then why is that? So you just say why and why and why and why forever. Yeah. And you, you, I, I think of it as like, so this, this is something that I, I, I thought about before that I wanted to bring up is like, so I think about, um, and this is not very controversial, but I think about it, there's this sort of map of what is known and unknown so so i'm gonna i'm gonna go to math because it's pretty easy for me to talk about but so something that's known is that uh, one is less than 10 uh okay we, we definitely know that and um something else that's known is that like um oh one is not greater than 10 there we go that's <laughs> the same thing but like so one of those is very very true and sort of boringly true and the other one's very very false and sort of like boringly false. I mean, I guess those are kind of the same statement, but so what's interesting is when you get, well, is that true or not? So I've got some function I want to estimate. 
whatever, and I can estimate it by another function or maybe something that's a little bit closer. And when it, when you're like, well, shoot, I don't know if that's true or not. That's where things get interesting, right? So I that think uncertainty is where the newness comes out. Yeah. And so I think about this as it relates to like, say, a movie. Okay. If I watch a children's movie, um, it, it can, it can sometimes be boring cause I know the good guy's going to win. And if I watch, you know, uh, a, like a, maybe some sort of, a, a, te- a telenovela or something that, that can be, um, I mean, again, both things can have merit, but like that can be kind of boring. Cause I know that whatever seems to be going right, they're just going to like ruin it in a couple of episodes. Right. Like, Oh you know, character A and character B finally got together, which means that one of them is going to cheat on the other one within a half season, right? You know, that's just their rules, right? So what's interesting is these things where you really maybe don't know exactly what's going to happen and and you're really not sure. And I think that's that's also true with, with creative pursuits. So um, I have this idea in my mind that's like, I want to draw a picture of an orange. And if I'm a really, really good artist or, or, you know, graphic artist, then maybe I draw the picture of the orange that I knew that I could draw. And that's only so interesting because I, I knew I could do it. Or maybe I'm not very good at, at creating a representation that's in my mind. So I, I try to draw something that I just really can't. And I get this, this thing that's so far from the image of what I had. So what I think is most interesting is when you're really right at your limits of what you can and can't do, because that's where it's like, interesting that's where it's not boring you know it's like yeah d- describe how that applies to like rock climbing for example and how that yeah, can yeah, so improve your life this outside of climbing perfect okay. i go pee and let you talk to yeah me. sure tell the kids about rock climbing okay so that's, that's how we know each other yeah. so here's where chance's treasure is buried <laughs> so I, th- I think the thing about rock climbing it's like um, just to put it in a similar context, you have um, it could, like like climbing is fun, but maybe climbing a route or a, or a boulder problem that's super easy for you. I mean, it can have certain certain types of enjoyment, but if it's super duper easy and you know you're going to get to the top, that's that that kind of has a limiting factor to how much you enjoy it. And by the similar token, if there's you know. Um, I walk in to some new climbing area and I see this thing that, that with the climbing rating system is like twice as hard as anything I've ever completed, even in my best shape. Then, I I mean, I try to go after everything with a positive attitude, but it's, it's highly likely that I'm not going to get to the top of that one. So in some sense, both of those have uh, a hindrance put on how interesting they are. But if I climb something or attempt to climb something that's right at my limit, then I really don't know if I'm going to get to the top or not. I have to, I have to really try as hard as I can. Cause I, I think, Hey, this could happen. This is, this is not something that I, that I really know whether it's going to happen or not. And that again, I'm not trying to say it's boring to climb easy stuff. I'm just saying that there is an element of interest that comes from that being right on the border. And there are days too, where it's more beneficial to you to climb something that's a, somewhat easier, but then, do it with repetition so that it becomes hard mm-hmm. because then uh, it sort of makes you break down to the fundamentals of what you're doing and focus on the small details in a way where maybe something that you're doing that's really hard, you're having to kind of do an explosive uh, push through as opposed yeah. to a uh, endurance survival 
Well, and that, that kind of harkens back to those challenges, like draw a picture a day for a hundred days and you'll get better at drawing or write a song a day for a year and you'll get better at writing songs or writing short stories. Or Dude, you nailed the theme of why I'm even making this show. Yeah. Like I was just thinking today, what's it going to be like when I get to episode 100? Mm. Like how much better at making episodes will I be? How much just all around, how much more will I have been become yeah. invested in this thing I'm doing? And, but anybody can learn anything to sure. like, that's what you're essentially saying. You could draw for a hundred days and you're going to be better at drawing. So with, with intention, I mean, if you put intention, if you just like throw a, pencil at the page and walk no, away no man you can throw a pencil at the page and walk away <laughs> i it it might not be like it okay if your intention is to just draw whatever you feel like drawing even if it doesn't have some sort of relative quality to it based in based on a certain form yeah you know you don't need to compare it to realism or compare it to surrealism or anything sure if you just compare it only to itself and what it was like on day one versus day 100, you will see a magnification of complexity in that person's art. Even if even if all they're doing is with almost no intention doodling randomly. Because I, I mean, you can only just you can only mindlessly put yourself in front of the page like that for so long before some kind of other part of yourself starts to take over and you do start having creative ideas and you do start actually putting some intention into it. And that's like, that's what the muse is. Even if it's not the best thing in the universe that comes through on day 100, if that person then went on to develop that style for 300 more days, you're going to have a, a further magnification of the uniqueness of that person's ability. I mean, I, I agree. I'm just saying like they, you have to try. It, it's it's something you, you can't just try. like, I mean, like if I walk into the climbing gym a hundred times, that doesn't mean that I'm getting better. Like I have to like at least get on the wall. Yeah, I, that's yeah. all I'm saying. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not saying you have to try to make it look realistic or try to make it look like Dali or whatever, but like. So for a, for a lot of people though, I guess where I'm going to go, what I'm getting at is just showing up every day constitutes such an improvement yeah. to what they're doing that that's why meditation it's again such a big discipline builder such a like a helpful thing for improving other aspects of your life because you're teaching yourself to show up every day yeah and show, showing up is a part of the intention i would say mm -hmm. but like i'm just saying it's it's not like you know you have to try you, you have yeah, to you, you have to you have to at least put put some intention into the action because it's like you know there's this there's this saying like practice makes perfect and it's like well no you, you, you'll get good at doing whatever you did and if what you did was throw a bad pass and like not communicate with your teammates then the practice is kind of lost on you you know yeah there's a bad type of practice yeah that's true um that, that's all i was saying yeah. so hmm i wonder how that applies to meditation actually like is there a bad way to meditate is oh, there a yeah. way that you can sit there and just be wasting your time because I feel like no matter what, if you're at least breathing pretty well, you're going to get some benefit. But there are. What, what, I mean, what if you're like chanting hateful statements in your mind that that's like the whole time? That's bad. I guess you'll get better. At Dude, that's hateful. what some people literally do all day. They're I know. meditating on hate. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, th th I think there are definitely bad things you can do, but that's a very good point. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's why. I was kind of saying before about like meditation where I was like, okay, I, I know I'm not going to die from meditating, but I think I need to like learn a little bit more. And, and I've since read and stuff, so I'm not so freaked out, but it's like, 
you know, I think of it like fire. It's, it's ubiquitous, but it's also powerful. You know, it's, it's not the most complicated thing to, to generate once you know how, but like it, it, you can mess things up, you know? I mean, if, if you use it the wrong way, you can, I mean, you can use maybe meditation in a broader sense to like brainwash a group of people and make them do something terrible you know like well i think as you gain in levels of awareness you basically also um increase your degrees of energy in a way okay uh because i don't know energy energy always like changes forms right or it doesn't always but it often changes forms so you, you like take in energy in certain in all these different perceptual ways through the eyes, through the ears and all of that converts into information energy in your mind, like the way that you're interpreting things. So because we end up creating all these like heavy filtration systems between ourselves and our direct experience, especially as a way to hide or to make our, to like let our ego hide from our awareness so that we are able to continue so that ego is not we, but so it, the ego is able to continue living as mm -hmm. a separate organism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it'll, you'll, if you're increasing your degrees of awareness, you're going to notice all these things that you weren't noticing before. You're literally taking in more sense data in a way because you're more directly connected to the present moment, the more aware you are. So yeah. that, that converts directly to like information in the mind, but that is sort of like an energy intake increase that is a happening in a sense. So the more, the more power any system has, the more catastrophic it could be when it melted down. So like, <laughs> like, and in a weird way, if this could like, it could be, it could be really serious. If you look at things on a quantum scale, like look at quantum mechanics, observer phenomenon having such a dramatic effect on the quantum I world. Yeah. It's a dramatic it's effect. Yeah. So does that mean if as an observer, you increase your sensitivity and awareness to your present moment and your experience, and you also increase your level of ability to intend mm -hmm. alongside your, that perception, does that mean you could actually alter outcomes in your environment and in your life? I mean, I don't, I don't know about that. Like directly, but um, maybe at least have some kind of uh, impact on the probability of things because well, people, I mean, have you not had synchronistic events in your life oh, that yeah, seem yeah. to be far beyond the realm of chance or st like statistical probability? Yeah, for, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Like, um, but I was going to say that there's also like some like I've heard anecdotally, I haven't actually read studies, but I've heard that the some casino somewhere hired this like. I don't know, this science lady, she was really good at doing the science, whatever. And what she was studying was, um, different people had different levels of, uh, like abilities to control. I don't know if it was their aura or whatever, you know, you can put a new age term on it, but they would sit in front of slot machines and they could actually do better than statistically, uh, what is expected. And what they did was then they insulated the wires more, and that got rid of that statistical aberration. See, that goes back to what I was talking about with the, electromagnetic fields. Yeah, electromagnetic fields. Right. Literally, your intentions can go out and affect the outcome of other things that are connected to this vibratory 
web. Yeah, so that, that's, that's that, wild. That could, I mean, that could suggest such a connection. Now, again, I don't know. If well, especially like, when you're talking about other people, because all these other people around you, especially if they're a lower level of personal self-awareness, mm-hmm. they're that much more influenced by the strong emission of someone around them. So like, yeah. that's how you get a great leader in a time of, uh, a, not a great leader in a good way, by the way, I'm talking about like, quote unquote, great leader, like the mm-hmm. way that Kim Jong-il would describe himself. He's got an entire culture of people that are very repressed and very mm-hmm. beat down and probably like not as self-aware as uh, other cultures because of the lack, extreme lack of energy in their system, sort of. Yeah. Uh, anyway, like you get these, you get these charismatic talk large groups of people into things type of people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is connected to this, this interconnection of field that is, you know, yeah. centered in our, I guess our hearts or whatever is generating that. Well, th- this thing, at least the reason that I bought into the thing that was explained to me about this, uh, the slot machine thing was, okay, science schmines, statistics, statistics, you can, you can buy anything off. Okay. I'm convinced at uh-huh, this point uh-huh. you can buy anybody off. But what convinced me about this was that then casinos went around and put more ins- like spent extra money to insulate their wires more because if they were convinced, that means it was a hard cash thing. You know, and that the, the hard that, cash doesn't lie. Yeah, like, that's, that's not like something you spin statistically to like to push a political agenda. Like, oh, I I want to make people think cl- climate change is more serious, and even if it's like a latent bias you don't realize or like are trying to correct for you. Like, I want to make people think climate change is more serious, so I'm gonna I'm gonna present the results in this way. Or I I think that climate change is happening, but not caused by man. So I'm going to present the same reports in a different way. You know, this. Okay, sorry. If casinos are spending money, it's a thing. Like this, (laughs) to me, I'm more convinced by that than by you know, quote unquote science. Because I mean, who cares about? I mean, science. Who who really cares? It's it's like seven people in that super sub micro discipline that are just like squabbling over each other's crumbs you and know? that's what so makes things kind of hard to progress as a big picture for science right now is because well i don't want to say this is why that is why but <laughs> a reason why might be because so many scientists are kind of cornered into a discipline yeah. that doesn't allow them to holistically look at other disciplines and where they're at and what's current and i think medical science and doctors in general especially the older generation of doctors are probably one of the most at risk groups for having out of date information. <laughs> Dude, there, there was a, a medical scientist, uh, Ty was her name that invented quote unquote, a way to study the, uh, b- blood glucose curve. So she came up with a new technique for estimating the area under a curve. Also known as like, you know, Simpson's rule that was around, I think before even, like it might've even been around before calculus, but like, because she clearly didn't pay attention in her calculus class, uh, or know like any of these things that we teach to like literally freshmen, but she's, you know, a medical professional. I'm sure she's very good at the medical end of things, but she like, you know, comes in and tries to say like, she knows this stuff. It's like, well, maybe, maybe you're, I mean, and, and it was a great idea. I'm not trying to denigrate the idea, but it's like, you're so far removed from the thing that you're trying to talk about that. It's like, man, you just like, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're cutting your feet off, you know, when you do that. And and like you're saying about these these people that get so wrapped up in their little sub disciplines and like 
there, there's so much money involved in it. There's so much incentive to do things this way or that way that it's really sometimes fairly opaque as to, yeah, man, just with all, with all the things like healthcare going on right now, like the healthcare reform, things with like pharmaceuticals and all this, it's like, and is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Like this, this practice? I think we to, can tell with certain practices that it's a bad thing. Like the pharmaceuticals yeah. thing, there's more people hooked on pills than ever before. Oh gosh, dude. And they're prescribed it. And then there's more people that then wind up yeah. going to heroin and stuff yeah. because it's cheaper because they fucked up their life so bad on the pills. It's a serious thing. And no, that's that's an epidemic, man. I mean, it's a serious academic. There are yeah. the real drug cartels are the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they're just cashing mm. out while they repress other things that might actually help people, you know, on well, a holistic and, level. Like, well, it, it, I uh, mean, like her herbal medicines and things, because, you know, for for, for a, a drug to hit the market. And again, I'm not trying to act like an expert here, but I've, I've heard these things. We're drug to hit the market. You have to show the efficacy of every chemical in it. Yeah, and that's like so bogus because thing, it totally know. takes away holistic approach. Yeah, and, and like maybe, like maybe the a, reason the herb worked was because it was the whole herb. Yeah, and and you know, I, I've I've had uh, traditional Western medicine people fire back at me, but like, well, what we do is we take the plant and we isolate the effective chemical, and that's how you get things like aspirin, and whatever. So, I mean, yeah, is I, aspirin that good for you though? Well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I mean, the way I see it, these are blunt instruments. So it's like chemically they're like punching you in the face so that your foot doesn't hurt so bad. And, and I maybe think that that's maybe not the right answer. Yeah. And, and maybe like if, for, for saving someone's life, like, yeah, you know, sure. Do whatever you have to do. I want to go to a hospital if I get in a car accident. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like there. Yeah. And for trauma, especially for like physical trauma, Western medicine is amazing. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. you get a broken bone, they can sure. really put you back together in ways that you never would have imagined before. My, my finger got rebuilt with Western medicine. And yeah. I'm really psyched. But <laughs> where it does fall short is that holistic approach to thinking like you can't just treat the body as if it's a car that you take in to see the mechanic and you've tuned mm -hmm. up the parts whenever they get messed up. You have to educate the driver of that vehicle to not, Holy to hell, not yes. put, uh, you know, Fruit Loops and Mountain Dew in the gas tank. I had two bowls of Lucky Charms today. <laughs> How much sugar is in that, man? I'm just, just infinity. Saying. But I mean, the I I I never do that. But like, uh, I, I ate in the dorms today, and because my wife was was volunteering at Greenwood, she's like, "Hey, uh, let's let's eat at the dorms." I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I'm going full on undergrad." Like we were saying. <laughs> so I was just like stacking the plates. You gotta like, have cheat days. Yeah, but she's like, how do you eat like that? I'm like, I'm going to the rock gym right after this. Like, and I was hungry after the rock gym. So, I mean, yeah, I was fine, you know, but it was funny. It was like, had a full plate of food, some of the little special, special things that the chef out there doing these like crazy fancy things. And then two bowls of Lucky Charms. I used to eat six bowls of cereal every day, minimum, plus the regular meals and then plus extra bowls of cereal if I was still hungry. But I worked out like a fiend. So like... You know, got burned. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, if you pay attention to your body, you'll, you'll know what, what it needs. And, and not today. The lucky charms was, was just, I was just kind of being silly, <laughs> but it, I was like, well, I'm, I'm headed to the rock. Hey, they're magically delicious. Man. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, they're magically. 
probably poisonous, but like, you know, whatever plastic or something they got it crunched up to make those marshmallows last for infinity. But like, you can get some dank sugary cereal that doesn't have to be quite that level of poisonous. But if you put me in the right place in time, though, I would eat Lucky Charms too. So I, yeah. like I've uh, especially like going back to the meditation thing, I do want to make sure that just because I'm talking about it all the time that like anyone listening doesn't think that I think you're an idiot if you don't do it. There are a lot of, you know, like there. Are, I don't. I don't think that. You I don't never think said that. that. I know, but like that. I'm constantly harping. You did on write it. it down on a piece of paper, though. <laughs> but uh, the same goes for like any kind of eating practices that I promote or any type of daily practice I promote. Like whatever is your thing, do that thing. Uh, no, if, but, if you find yeah. your center through sparring and martial arts, and that's what gets you a clear mind. That's your thing. Or if if climbing rocks is meditation to you because that mind-body connection has become so pure and that thought chatter falls away because you're focused, that's fine too. But I do bring up meditation a lot because I think it's a pretty universal thing. Like you were saying, it's like, a, it's like fire. It's yeah. a simple and accessible. Anyone can generate it. Yeah. Dude, uh, kind of – kind of shifting gears here I, I did want to mention something like talking about the shutting off the mind chatter with rock climbing so like you know people talk about the flow state the the dude with the really long name wrote the book and the Mihaly Chamalaki or uh, I, I can't remember what his name is but you know um and my dad has like seven copies of that book so <laughs> you know um so like probably my two like two, two of my best like rock climbing moments were, um, so one of them was on local flakes in Waco, which is a hard V2. It's like just super painful crimps. They're just like really sharp, tiny crimps. They're not hard to hold on. Like, like it's not like, Oh, I can't hold on to that. It's like, that's hurting me. Huh. And I remember the time that I climbed that I just kept trying. It's like, it's like three moves and then a throw to the lip. Right. And, um, and it's on the mushroom boulder, which is now closed. Sorry. But, um, I remember I just kept getting up and like, you know, it hurts to pull on the first move hurts a little bit more. The second move hurts way more than that. And the third move, it just, ow. And then you throw to the top and there's a, like a big jug at the top. And I remember just, it hurts so much. I'd always jump off and say like, ow, my hands. But the time that I did it, like, cause I sent it the time that I did it, I remember pulling the first move, pulling the second move, and then I have no idea what happened. I was horizontal with my hand on the top out jug, looking down, like kind of not sure what was going on. Like, how did I get here? And I was like, oh, I've got to activate my feet so I don't break my ankles. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I guess I got up here somehow. <laughs> so you almost had like uh I blacked out. Like, yeah, I was not conscious for that. Like, I don't know if it was because my pain tolerance is low or what, but like when I shut my brain off for a second, and let my body do its thing. I sent the thing. I think a lot of people that get into flow arts like hula hooping or poi or even juggling things where things where you're sort of, or even rock climbing, like yeah. you're saying, uh, or there's a million different a million different practices that could constitute a flow art, I guess. But you, I personally found that there's this weird state you can achieve and that this is what the flow state even is. And it's like mystical even to, uh, it feels mystical where you are in such an observer position to your body that you're literally just saying to yourself, step to the right, make uh, lift up your right hand, grab the right 
uh, hold. Yeah. You're not you're not thinking how you're not thinking about the motion. You're not controlling the motion. Mm. You're just deciding the motion, and the body just reacts. There yeah. is there's a weird state you can get into there, and I wonder if that's maybe even a more natural way of being and we've somehow gotten we've somehow kind of glitched out our software and gotten out of that as well, a species yeah like going back to the software metaphor so years ago i was dating this girl and she bought a computer at best buy and they put a bunch of antivirus software on there oh and yeah this computer that we're recording on right now i can't get the best buy antivirus off well so, so what happened was they put on two different antiviruses that were fighting each other. So yeah. the computer just stopped working. And I think a lot of what we do when, when we think about what we're thinking about, this like metacognition, we like run too many clock cycles on thinking about what we're thinking about, what we're thinking about, what we're thinking about. And it just causes too much traffic and it, it just slows down the machine. So like the, the other I wanted to tell you about the other time that this happened you're getting hyper focused on the wrong things basically yeah yeah um it was the sit start to phoenix which is probably the hardest thing i've ever climbed and it's also closed now <laughs> sorry <laughs> um and it was uh graded somewhere between seven and nine people have called it all three like seven eight and nine and um i just remember it's like three moves up to a v5 and the v5 i'd done I'd done it so many times. I even climbed it naked once just to do it. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's really good climbing. Um, but I remember I had I had all the moves dialed, and there was an armada out there. There's probably a dozen people out there, and we're all climbing, and it was like the big time because very few people had sent this. And um, so I was like working on it, working on it, working on it, and I knew today was the day. And I had had Dragon Force playing that didn't work. <laughs> Dragon I Force, had Cannibal Corpse playing that didn't work. I was like, man, you know. And we had video cameras and everything set up and it just didn't happen. You know, it just wasn't happening. And then my buddy Trent sent the the, the stand start, the, the five for the first time. I was like, man, that's so cool. He's like, you got to give it one more try. And I was like, I was done. I was so tired. I was like unhappy. I was like, only because you just sent the stand start, I'll give you one more shot. And I hop on, I pull the first move and I stick the second move, but not well, you know, my fingers are kind of slipping off and everybody's cheering and like, yeah, man, go, you got it. And I'm like, in my mind, I totally separated. And I was like, you know, I'm in such a bad place right now. I can't believe they're saying all these hollow things about how well it's going because I know it's going so poorly. Like they, they haven't pulled these moves. They don't know how, like how my fingers are slipping off. And then when I kind of went back and like shut down that conversation, I was already through the hard part and I was glad. <laughs> No, that's interesting. I think you can look at like anyone that's really achieving that you're watching, like that that artist that you're into or that uh, you know that musician that you always listen to. They seem like they're just flowing effortlessly through all these creations mm -hmm. and producing all these things that blow your mind and just manifesting them perfectly with no interruption. Mm -hmm. But in their life experience, just like for you, they're like, fuck, is this right? Fuck, am I doing that right? Like, what's going on? Maybe, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm sure for, there are like points of pure flow that are engaged, like you said, when you finally turn off that mental chatter. Yeah. But we're all going or at least, to... Or at least separate it from your body. Like, yeah. Like, get it, get it into a different place. Yeah. So, like, I'm not saying you should talk to yourself or have negative thoughts because I... I'm and, the, like, that, that scanning like, mechanism that your brain's doing that's, like, warning you about problems is it ha it's useful it's like yeah. that's data but it's not 
if your life's not being threatened, then just like you can, you can turn the volume down on it. Yeah. So I, I got in a flow state once playing music and this was in high school. Like I've become a way better musician, uh, since then. But I remember I was playing, uh, my buddy's, uh, sister's birthday party at a pool. I mean, how much more like high school garage band can you get? And I just oh, remember high school garage band. Yeah, you, you gotta be right. Yeah, <laughs> I just remember this one guitar solo where I was literally just watching my fingers, and I I, I had taken no drugs and didn't have anything to drink, you know. Yeah, spontaneously. Yeah, but I was just watching experience. my fingers, and I was like, I could see the frets, like the spot between the frets, like sort of glow a yellow. Like I I knew it wasn't, but I could perceive like, oh, that's where my finger's gonna go, isn't it? And my finger would wind up there, and it was like. This is that thing that they always talk about. And I was like, wow, I'm just watching this. And then the ego came back and I was like, wow, look at what I'm doing. And then and the guitar solo just went back into like normal. Normal. Yeah. But like, but like, how do we the, cultivate that moment, I mean, I man? That's, that is fucking enlightenment. Right. That moment is enlightenment. Yeah, that's like, what that is. And I think you can oh. have temporary enlightenment personally. Like enlightenment is also relative within like, context and yeah. it's exactly yeah. within context. It's all relative. Like no matter how much you wake up, there's always another level to wake up to. Yeah. But whenever you create these micro micro realities for yourself that you're experiencing that you can jump into, mm-hmm. you can jump into micro enlightenments, I guess you could sure. call it <laughs> micro dosing on enlightenment with uh, flow states from music and rock climbing. Like that, yeah, that's, okay, that's the title of this episode, by the way, micro dosing, <laughs> micro dosing enlightenment. Oh my gosh. So yeah, wait, I'm into that. we got to wrap this up because I got to go to bed. Uh, it's late. It's about midnight. This has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, um, I want to know, like, what's your actual job title? I always wanted to ask that the whole uh, time. Assistant professor. Of what department? Ma- mathematics. Just a mathematics professor? Yeah. So like just professor of math, man. That's Yeah, dude. Just math in general. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, is there anything you want to link to online, promote on, about oh, your yeah. presence on the internet that you can announce right now? Shoot. Yeah, I would like say. Like if anyone wants to check out stuff that you do, where, what can they do? Yeah, I would I would say uh you know stevensinger.bandcamp.com. It's I'll link to that. That's yeah, I figure you could put a link in. It's that's I'll be my, showcasing music too in the episode. Cool links. Yeah, that's that's my like um I think the 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 first cuz I got a bunch of music that's not on there, but the, those are the most recent things. Um the first one's called Cassette Tape for Your Car and it's it's, it's um music designed to be like passively enjoyed. So it's not like you sit down with headphones and listen to it. It's like you're doing something else and this is like attractive wallpaper. Um, not in the brain, you know, like super ambient sense, but it's like, you're supposed to be just driving around in your car just to drive around in your car. And there's a radio, but it doesn't take the center stage yeah. of your attention. So that's the, this isn't, you know, ambient music. I love yeah, that kind of stuff. This, that's the sort of the intention of it. And then uh, for for the Clash Royale players out there, I also have a Clash Royale YouTube channel where I give strategy in the same sort of aggressively monotone voice. And that's uh, Waco Tanks. That's my name. Uh, I, I can give you a link for that. Oh, yeah. I'll and, be sharing and, that. And I bet people will just go nuts to hear my game. <laughs> There's people that play Clash listening to this right now, oh, I'm sure. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, At least one. If you're that one, make sure you reach out to Steve because yeah. he, he needs you in the guild. Yeah. Shoot, man. 
No, we <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so if anyone wants to sign up for one of your classes, they go to Missouri State University in Springfield, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got. Oh, shoot. I didn't even tell you why I've been so like spaced out. We just submitted our first draft for our second book. So we've got maybe another book coming out on exponential bases. And, you know, if anybody's into exponential bases, they can read all about it in so, our book. <laughs> maybe I'll get you back on here to explain yeah. what that even fucking means. In short, you know how you say everything's vibrations. Uh, so everything is whatever it is, but you could think of it as vibrations. Right. That's a good metaphor, but yeah. it is what it is. Um, so what it like, is is kind of undefinable. Right. So, so if you're looking at anything, you can think of it as vibrations or as we like to call it loosely, uh, complex exponentials, sums of complex exponentials or exponential bases. I mean, it's very loosely, but I mean, you, you, that's, that's not for like humans to read. That's like <laughs> the specialist thing. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, there's a few non-humans that listen to this also, uh, good. They're on the mothership right now. They've already downloaded the PDF of your book. <laughs> Probably. Somehow. I mean, I mean, they've got it from the future. They've I mean, Dropbox isn't that secure, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, man, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your home. Yeah, oh, thanks for sharing yourself with, you know, the Interverse tribe. Also, mm-hmm. thank you for the support on Patreon. I wanted to oh, yeah. you know, thank of you course. personally there. Um, I'm sure that people have heard enough of me talking about it, so I'll leave it at that. But, like, super, I super appreciate it. Well, and Patreon is just a great system for, like, I, I, one of the things I like about the, the new, like, internet stuff is that, you know, we're communicating more. We're also supporting each other more directly as opposed to, like, through huge multinational corporations. Now it's like, hey, I like this small niche that this group is doing. Let me support them with money directly yeah and because it's small you can actually directly be a part of it and yeah. so yeah you guys can be directly a part of the show go check out the patreon we can get involved and interact and it's very fun uh, i love you all right i love you all i love you steve love you too man it's been awesome um, yeah. bye bye everybody cheers just kidding here we are we're, we're back for just a second steve is going to announce some of his upcoming shows yeah go i forgot for about that yeah so I was in a blues band called the Filthy Homewreckers for a long time. Or sorry, for, for a short time, a long time ago. We're having a reunion show. So all four members coming back from four different cities to play. It, it should be March 1st in Columbia at the Rose Rose Music Hall. Cool. We got some Columbia people listening. They might go check it out. Nice. Talking to you, Shannon. And then, uh, and then I'm hoping to put together an electronic show at some point with uh, Blank Thomas and Hylia Day. I don't want to get them... Uh, Johan's down, so hopefully we'll get something going on in the spring. I'll, I'll play with them. Powerful Johan. Yes, powerful Johan. Positive Johan. <laughs> so that is, that's it. Cool, man. All right. All right. Bye again, everybody. We love you. Have a good one. Epic, epic conversation. I really hope to have Steve back on the show again soon. I feel like I will. Let me know what you thought of it. Make sure you share the show with other people that are 
hip to this kind of jazz. And um, please, let me ask you a favor. Please go look at my Patreon. Have you looked at it yet? Are you giving me a dollar yet? I only need a dollar, man. <laughs> okay, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Have an awesome life. If you have, I've got an answer for you. Check out wanderwareshop.com for some handcrafted, hippie-licious, beautiful, crystal-infused, metaphysically powerful, artistically aligned, conscious, creative products from my good friend Marina Carey. Wanderware also sponsors the show, so if you find anything you like, you'll get 12% off if you use coupon code INTERVERSE. That's wanderwareshop.com. Go check it out. Show her some love. Thank you.